Let's open in prayer, and we'll get into uh, the remainder of this letter. Our Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. Thankful, Lord, for an opportunity to study your word and uh, to read it together, to talk about it, Lord, and, and just to kind of bathe, Lord, in the power of your word, Lord, to uh, just receive truth from your word. And Lord, as we learn uh, what your apostle shared about uh, what happens when we die, we just pray that it will be a source of great comfort and joy for everybody in the room and everybody that watches. So Lord, we lift this up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're picking it up in uh, verse 13. The first 12 verses of chapter 4, uh, Paul is pleading for their purity. We talked a lot about purity as we closed out last week and, and, uh, and living an orderly life as a Christian. And then uh, in verse 13, he's going to now take up uh, this concern. I'll go ahead and read from 13 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll back up and address it more in a verse-by-verse way. So starting in verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So first I want you to just kind of marvel at the fact that when he talks about the death of his audience, he says, I want you to comfort one another with these words. So what can it be about death? that he says, use that message about death for the comfort of the church. So let's take a look at this. Now, there are differing levels of grief in death. And Paul here gives two different categories of grief. One category are people who grieve with hope, and the other category are those that grieve without hope. So Paul wants the believer to know the difference because theirs is a grief with hope. And he's afraid that they're going to not know the difference. So you see in verse 13, he says, but I do not want you to be ignorant. So he wants them to know what he knows. Now, what does Paul know? Well, I want you to keep in mind a couple things about Paul. One, He speaks of, immediately after his conversion, spending three years in Arabia being counseled or taught by Christ. That's pretty good school to go to. This is the risen Christ, teaching Paul in Arabia for three years. He says, I did not consult with any apostle. There was no human that I talked with or got taught by or anything. It was, uh, I was called and taught by Christ himself. So, He has firsthand information on this. Now, um, so so he doesn't want us to be ignorant. Paul's not ignorant about this, and so now he doesn't want us to be ignorant about it. 
concerning those who have fallen asleep. So he's talking about those who have already died in their community. So this is about those that you're grieving their loss and you are concerned that they're missing out on some extra special resurrection, <coughs> and, um, but I don't want you to sorrow about them. Now, first he says, I don't want you to sorrow as others who have no hope. So, for, verse 14, he sets the standard of, are you somebody that can grieve with hope? Are you somebody that has hope? So he says, here's the condition that has to be met. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the qualifier, right? To participate in the resurrection unto life, the qualifier is that you're somebody who believes that Jesus died and rose again. And just as Jesus died and rose again, Paul says, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So Jesus' death and resurrection is a foretaste of what will happen to the believer. Yes, they will die. It's appointed for man to die once. And then in our judgment, just like you saw Jesus rise again, which was God's approval of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of the world, God's approval of that is shown by him raising Jesus from the dead. You think Jesus would raise a false teacher from the dead? You think Jesus would raise a heretic from the dead? A blasphemer from the dead? No, he's going to show his approval of the life, death, and the impact of his life and death by raising him from the dead. Just like the Old Testament high priest who could only go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, he had to bring blood with him, um, and, it, and he had to be the high priest. And if any of those things were out of order, he would die back there. So how did the Israelites know if the sacrifice that the high priest made for them was effective? He would walk out of the Holy of Holies alive. That means God accepted his sacrifice. Same with Jesus walking out of the tomb. That was God's approval on Jesus as yes, indeed, he successfully made it through life sinless. He was the perfect sacrifice. So I'm going to raise him from the dead to show my acceptance. So now God approves of you and your faith in Jesus. Uh, he will rise you from the dead as well. So the condition again, if, you believe that Jesus died and rose again. All right, so verse 15. For this we say to you by word of the Lord. So there's the authority of what he's saying. This is by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So he's saying kind of the opposite of what you thought, that it's really, really better if you're alive when Jesus comes back Paul says, no, you actually take a backseat if you're alive when Jesus comes back. You take a backseat to those who died before you, okay? So their bodies are going to be risen from the grave before you're going up into heaven. They're going to be glorified, and then you will, uh, you who are alive when Jesus comes back will be brought up to heaven. So he says there, it's actually the opposite of what you think. The first priority is going to those who pass away before the second coming of the Lord. So in verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, this is a description of what we call the perusia. Okay, the perusia, or the parousia, is uh, the second coming of Jesus. 
Um, in Aramaic, we use the term Maranatha, which is really cool because I actually met a girl who works at our barista at Calvary, and guess what her name is? Maranatha. And Maranatha means come our Lord, our Lord come. It, it's this cry of the believer for Jesus' second coming. We say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And her parents named her Maranatha. So every time you call this girl's name, you're literally calling for the second coming. Isn't that a brilliant thing to do to your child, right? You're literally forcing the world to call upon the second coming of Christ every time you say your name. And so just to make sure, because it says Maranatha right across it, I said, is there like a nickname you go by or anything? She says, yeah, I go by Mary. I go, that doesn't work, okay? <laughs> Mary doesn't work. I said, we're going to go with Maranatha then, all right? She's like, yes, we can go with Maranatha, all right. Now, um, we see teachings on this from Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. I failed to put bookmarks in my Bible for this lesson, so it's going to take me a moment here. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That's how Paul feels about everybody that doesn't love Jesus. Let him be accursed. And then he says what? Oh, Lord, come. Guess what that word is? Maranatha, he says. Okay, oh, Lord, come. Maranatha. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. James talks about this in uh, chapter 5 of his letter. James 5, starting in verse 7. Says... Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So there's a preparation James gives us for the coming of the Lord, and his word is be patient. Now, can you imagine if they knew enough to say, Hey, you guys are super anxious for the second coming of the Lord, but guess what? Over 2,000 years from now, on the other side of the planet, there's going to be a gathering in a place in Coconut Creek, Florida, and they're going to be talking about waiting on the Lord still, okay? So just like we're waiting on the Lord, they were waiting on the Lord even in their day, okay? 1 Peter chapter 1 is the third place I'll bring you here, what Peter says about it. Can imagine how excited Peter would be because he walked with him for three years, right? First Peter 1, starting verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our hope is what they had as a firsthand experience of the risen Christ. Peter had interactions with Jesus risen from the dead. Right? He was redeemed by the risen Christ around a charcoal fire. What a great name for a website. My goodness, yes. He was redeemed by Jesus over a charcoal fire, the risen Christ. So they have several post-resurrection um, occurrences with Jesus Christ. And he says, so we have that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, see the eternality of your inheritance, right, in heaven, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, 
Why were you grieved by various trials while you're waiting for the second coming of Christ? Verse 7, so that the genuineness of your faith, which is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. So there's another descriptor of those who have authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter will say this, though you haven't seen him, you do what? You love him. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Okay? Now it says your trials are for the testing of your faith, which is much more precious than gold. Now how do you test gold? You put it in a fire. Everything impure in that gold is going to burn, burn away. And when you pull that gold out, it'll be purer than ever and more valuable than ever. That's what, why God gives you trials in life. You're being tested and so that all your impurities can burn away. Okay, sometimes when we're tested, we add impurities to our soul, don't we? The purpose of trials from God are that the impurities get burned away from you, okay? So I told you guys, I think, in a very transparent way about how I handled my biggest trials, the Buffalo Bills, right? And how I, <laughs> and how I um, refused to let anything negative come out of my heart, my mouth, anything. Um, and that trial happens every year for 55 years I've been alive. So it's about time I figured that one out, right? All right, so, okay, now, though you don't see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. What's the very end of your faith? It's the salvation of your souls, okay? So, uh, that all has to do with the second coming of Christ. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, now in verse 17, we pick it up and it says, Then we who are alive and remain, so these are, are the ones that the Thessalonians thought were getting the best part of the resurrection, says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus... We shall always be with the Lord, okay? So he says, so here's what happens, okay? So your loved ones who died that you're concerned about know this. If Jesus comes back today, they're going to rise first. So it's not like they're missing out on anything. They're going to see glory. They're going to see Jesus. They're going to know what a glorified body is all about while you're still this earthling on the earth, okay? So they're going to precede you in all of the good things that are coming. So don't be sad for them. Okay, they're, they're actually going to get the glorified, resurrected body before you are. Then, after that happens, you will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, he says, we, you'll be joined with them. Thus, we will always be with the Lord. So he finishes his teaching on death with this. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So... Um, what I'm going to do now is this. I'm actually going to walk you through one of my uh, memorial services. Um, <clears throat> reason being is if I do your memorial, you won't hear this. So I want you to hear it now, okay? All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that came out differently than I meant it. But anyways, uh, <laughs> John, you got to edit this stuff, man. All right? Okay. Now, but 
I've had such great conversations with people after memorial services, and I realize just how the words of the Bible really instill comfort. I mean, real comfort, really instilling it. So I want to share some of those words that I share with people. Starts in Psalm 116, verse 15. Psalm 116, verse 15 says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So that very event that brings us such heavy hearts and grief and weeping and mourning and all this, we have to realize there's something about that that is very precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Because everything you've ever learned about the redemptive plan of God is fulfilled for God upon our death. The very separation that was caused in the garden that hasn't allowed him to be with us, his presence would overwhelm us and kill us if he ever, his holiness was ever in front of us as sinners. Well, everything that he designed so that that can be forgiven and we could be rejoined to him is fulfilled for him upon our death. So it's very precious in his sight. Just like any child that's been gone a long time comes home. How precious in your sight is that child? So, so, so the Lord seeing his saints come back to him after death is very precious in his sight. There's nothing tragic to God about the death of a believer. Now, um, after that, I want to share with you, um, just remind you that Paul then says in 1 Thessalonians 4, he starts with, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. And then when he tells you what happens, he says, comfort one another with these words. And then from there, I like to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the most detailed explanation of what actually happens when you pass away, when the believer passes away. This is the greatest level of detail we get on that. Some of you might be wondering what verse. We're going to start in verse 35. Verse 35. Paul says this, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? You ever have that question? Paul anticipates that question. He says, how are the dead raised up and what, with what body do they come? He says, oh foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Isn't that true of a seed that the farmer plants in the ground? Unless that seed get, goes in the ground and is buried and dies, it never becomes the crop, right? So he says, nothing becomes what it's intended to be until it dies. It says that's why God gave you farming the way that he gave you farming, okay? So every time, now think back before we could process foods and all this when it was all farming. Think back at at what the farmer experienced every day. He experienced these these seeds and he, 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 he plows through the dirt and he throws them in the dirt. It's like that's what you try to keep things away from, right? The dirt. And then he buries them. And then things he has no control over, like rain and sun and things like that, he waits it out for the rain and the sun to have its perfect work on it. And then that soil has the life-giving nutrients in it to grow a crop that happens to have all the vitamins that your body requires. And it happens to have the texture that is perfect for the teeth that you have in your gums. Okay, And then you have the perfect acids to tear it all apart in your stomach to process it and then somehow your body knows to take what's nutritious and throw that into your bloodstream and take what's not nutritious and 
have a waste thing going on for you. That's pretty impressive of evolution, isn't it? Okay. Now, so he says, listen, God gives you farming to show you that what you're supposed to be will never be experienced until you die. Okay, then you're going to be what you're supposed to be. So if you think about the last thing that you ate, okay, I just ate a chicken, okay? That chicken was alive, right? Now it's dead. Why is it dead? That chicken died because I'm to live, literally died for me, right? Even the bread was wheat that was alive and growing. It was cut off so it couldn't grow anymore and processed to make bread. Why? So that I could live. Okay, all of, all of nature out there is food that has to die so that we can live. It's a story of the sacrifice that is intended for us. Things will die for us to live. Look at your sleeping patterns. Couldn't God have made it where you never have to sleep? If you live 90 years, you're awake for 90 years, God could have done that, but he didn't. He said, you're gonna, what percentage of your life, if you live 90 years, how many years are you going to be sound asleep? 30. You're supposed to sleep eight hours out of every 24. That's a third. So if you do that every day, you'll be sound asleep for 30 years. It's amazing you guys are so tired, right? Okay. You'd be sound asleep for 30 years. Now, God could have said, listen, you're going to be born and wide awake from birth to 30. You're going to nap from 30 to 60, and then you're going to live from 60 to 90. He could have done that, right? He could have had you awake two days, sleep a day, awake two days, sleep a day. But he chose every single day that you would experience entering into a death-like sleep just to rise again in the morning so that when he teaches you about resurrection, it's not foreign to you. You're like, every day I experience that. Okay, so I can trust you with that. I, I understand things have to die so that I can live. I get that, okay? So all these things are gospel messages throughout your daily experience. God's constantly giving us the gospel. Here Paul says, the seed is not made alive until it dies. Verse 37, and what you sow, you don't sow the body that shall be, but you sow mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. So now he's saying, not only does that seed have to die to become what it's supposed to be, but God doesn't make the seed anything like what it's intended to be. It's far different than what it's intended to be. You sow seeds and you get grain. So in 39, now he expands on that understanding, says all flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another kind of flesh of animals, another kind for fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, and there's also terrestrial bodies. And the glory of the celestial is one kind of glory, and the glory of the terrestrial is another kind of glory. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and one star differs from another star in its glory. So also is the resurrection from the dead. Okay? <clears throat> He's saying we're going to be given different bodies and they will vary in their glory. Okay? Now, the ancients always looked at the stars and believed that there was some sort of being as uh, ascribed to those stars. And those beings' glory was based on the glory of that star. Even the Bible uses that language sometimes. Um, when God tells Abraham to look at the night sky and says, so shall your offspring be, many scholars believe it's not talking about the number of the stars, it's talking about the glory of the stars. Okay, so, so that language is out there for us. 
So in 42, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. Feel it? Our bodies get corrupted, correct? It's raised in incorruption. The body's sown in dishonor. That's why we're all clothed today, right? Without the clothing, there'd be great dishonor. Uh, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised as a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So this is how you're to think of your dead loved ones in Christ. Okay, They are incorruptible. They are in glory. They are in power. They, are, they have a spiritual body. Okay, That's how you're to be thinking of them. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward is the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And is, as is the man, heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So in other words, we have to have sown on us a spiritual body, Right? The flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. This is our first Thessalonians 4, right? What about those who don't sleep when the Lord comes? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, because of all that good news, Paul says, until you experience that, you're to, you're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now from there, I like to go to John chapter 11 to share this. And so when people experience difficulty with death, when they when their grief is overwhelming and they're really missing their loved one, I like to share this section of scripture with them. It's John 11, starting in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now it was the ancient belief that the spirit of a dead person hovered around the grave for three days. So I want you to hear that as you realize Jesus waited four days before he went to the tomb. What is he doing? He's coming, overcoming their mythologies, right? He's overcoming. You're going to believe that if I raise him on the third day or the second day or the first day, you're going to go, well, the spirit was hovering around here anyways. I'm going to wait until you're over all of that, and I'm going to raise him from the dead, okay? He'd already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, 
they had a belief that there's one great final resurrection, that everybody's raised on the last day, and, and, um, and that you are in a state of soul sleep until then. Okay, so that Lazarus is not conscious awake or anything, and he won't be until some great last day. But Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha's thinking, yeah, I know that. I know. She says, Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection in the last day. Now, so what is her hope in? What word is her hope for her dead brother in? What word? Resurrection, right? She's grieving. She's mourning, uh, crying, all these things. But there's one word that gives her a little bit of life in her soul. It's this word resurrection. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection. So how must her heart have reacted when the very next word she hears out of Jesus' mouth is, I am the resurrection? He didn't say you're right about this thing called resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. Okay, I want you to think about that. Jesus will say things like, I am the truth. I'm not a truth teller. I'm actually what truth is. Okay. I am the truth. I am the resurrection. All the great I am statements of Jesus Christ. Even when he says something like, I am the door, you're like, that's not nearly as impressive as being the resurrection, right? Being a door. But you have to know how they heard that. They knew Noah's door to the ark. There's one of them. If you want to live, be on the inside of that door. If you're outside that door, you will die, right? There's one way to be saved. And you have Rahab's door with the scarlet cord. If you're inside that door, you will live. If you're outside that door, you will die, okay? They knew the Passover door. If you're inside that door, you'll live. If you're outside that door, you'll die. They knew that about these biblical doors. And then Jesus Christ comes and says, I am the door. If you're in me, you will live. If you're outside of me, you will die, okay? He's the salvific door. So, so Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me. It's always the condition, right? Is there, any, is there ever a second condition to that? And is that condition ever missing? It's always, 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 always if you believe. So he who believes in me, though he die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then what does he ask? He wants to know if she's qualified to participate in it. So what does he ask her? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Now all the promises are available to her, aren't they? To her belief. Okay. So the last place I like to go is Revelation 21. And what I like to assure people about John 11 is this. Jesus assures Martha, grieving Martha, you will see your brother again. There's going to be a reunion. And the, the good news then is this. There is no word goodbye, Christian to Christian. There's never a goodbye. It's always, even at the, at the cemetery, it's always, it's, it's always uh, I'll see you later. It's never goodbye. There's going to be a reunion. You will be with your loved ones in Christ forever and ever. Okay? Revelation 21, 1. So glad God, John got this vision. It's one of the great visions in Scripture. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. <laughs> now that seems like an unimportant detail, but if you realize what's going on in Genesis 1, 
It says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the surface of the deep. So all there is is darkness and deep. Uh, scholars like to use the word chaos for that. It's just everything's chaos, and life is impossible. God has to overcome the darkness by creating light. He has to overcome the deep by creating land. And until he creates light and land, there can be no mankind, right? He's got to overcome the darkness and the deep. So here we see all eternity is the overcoming of the deep. There's no more what? See, the very thing that marked chaos and the inability to survive is, doesn't exist in heaven. Why? Because you're to always, always, always survive. You're to always live. There's no more see. And another part of the same section of Revelation, it says there's no night there. It's always light. The darkness is permanently and forever overcome. So the Bible starts with darkness and deep. It ends with no more darkness and no more deep. See how the Bible's interconnected? The very, very beginning, darkness and deep, and there ain't a living soul on the planet. It ends with no darkness and no deep, and there ain't no more death on the planet. Okay? Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now think about that metaphor there. He sees the new city, the eternal city, the city that you will, I think it's downtown heaven, quite frankly, and I'll think it's all of heaven for various reasons. One being, we get the measurements of the new Jerusalem. So it's a finite space. It has gates that are always open, so you can come in and out whenever you want. But if you can go out of the new Jerusalem, that means there's areas outside of it. And Jesus will say things like, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come take charge of 10 cities. So there's, if, if, if a good and faithful servant can take charge of 10 cities, then there must be thousands or millions of cities outside of those gates. And so that, so to me, the New Jerusalem is what I call downtown heaven. So you want to go downtown in heaven, you go to New Jerusalem. All right. Now, it's prepared as a bride for her husband. And this always reminds me of my daughter's wedding day where I saw girl number one show up at my house to do her hair and every strand of her hair was cared for and sprayed or glued or whatever, so it would not move that entire day, right? And then another girl came in after that to do her makeup and every square inch of her face was cared for to look exactly as she wanted it to look and then the dress shopping and the shoe shopping, which drove me nuts because nobody ever saw the shoes, right? She could have wore Crocs, nobody would have known the difference. But anyways, um, I saw what it was like to be a bride adorned for her husband. It's a big deal. There's a lot that goes into it. And so the Bible says that's what Jesus, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that's how he's doing it. Okay, he's doing it with a great, exquisite detail. It says, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The separation's over, okay? The separation between God and man is over. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mourning is over. Grieving is over. There shall be no more death. There's a hallelujah. That's a painful thing for all of us, isn't it? There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. As a Bills fan, that's intense. It's amazing. No more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things that passed away. Now, here's what we say when we lose a loved one. They passed away. The Bible never says that. Never says that. It says 
in verse 1, the first heaven and first earth pass away. And in this last verse, it says, it says, the tears pass away, the death passes away, the sorrow passes away, and the crying passes away, and the pain passes away. It never says the believer passes away. The believer passes onward, and all the things that hindered that believer pass away. They experience death. Okay? But all the negativity is gone and dead, but God's child goes on and on and on and on and on. So that's why Paul can say, Comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5. So you're going to be like, when does this happen? Well, Paul knows you're going to do that. So he says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as the thief in the night. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told us? Okay. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. So let's stop there for a second. <coughs> now, as Jesus said, not even he knows the day and the hour, correct? And I think that was God's grace upon him, because how would people hound him for the knowledge of the day and the hour if he knew, right? Because what would we do if we knew the day and the hour? You would live like a child of the devil until the day before the day of the Lord, and then you'd be the most repentant sinner we've ever seen, right? If you knew when he was coming, you would know how to time out this, your life, right? Okay? Don't people do that anyways? They're like, I'll repent on my deathbed. I'll try to time it out, right? So how much more so would we be like that if we knew the day and the hour of the coming of the Lord? So we get zero teachings on the day and the hour of the Lord, okay? I've sat with people who believe they knew, I was given somebody at the church uh, when that September date, I think it was around 2013, 14 area, and everybody was convinced the world was going to end, the rapture was going to happen, and all of that. And I remember, I think my wife and maybe my son went to a Marlin game, you know, at the roof. I said, make sure the roof's open, because if you guys get raptured, I'd hate for you to bump your head on the way up, you know? So... Um, <laughs> So, um, and, and, and this guy literally showed me clips from The Simpsons and all of that to prove that September, something, September 23rd was the day of the Lord, okay? Now, The Simpsons are right about a lot, but they did miss that one because we're still going on. <laughs> so, um, what does Jesus say? Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 24 Matthew 24, starting in 36, Jesus tells us this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But here's what he wants you to know about it. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will becoming the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until, until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he said, just like in the days of Noah, the day the flood came and took them all away was somebody's wedding day that day. They were given away in marriage. 
And when she opened her mouth to say, I do, boom, flood, gone. Okay? It's going to be that way at the second coming of the Lord. I'm, I'm, year after year, I love telling students, you know, there's going to be somebody somewhere planning their wedding, getting everything ready for their wedding day and everything. Now the day has finally arrived. Dad walks the daughter down the aisle and all this. The vows are being said. And she's asked, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? She's going to inhale to say the word she's waited to say since she was six. And boom, the Lord's coming back. She never gets out of her mouth. And all the girls in the room always go, oh, no. And I said, do you really think that that bride would respond that way if she realized that her wedding day was really for Jesus and not for Joe? You know? Okay? I think she's going to be astounded that she actually picked the day of her true eternal marriage was the day she picked for, for, for as her wedding day. It's not going to be any disappointment that day. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So he's saying, listen, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It's unexpected. Nobody knows when the thief is coming. It's going to be like that. But he says, listen, but that should not be your experience. Why? Because you're walking every day prepared, right? It's a lot different when a thief comes and you're unprepared and a thief comes and you are prepared. It's a big difference in the outcome of that, correct? So it's saying it's not going to overtake you as a thief in the night. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. <coughs> so, for this, Jesus speaks on this in the very next chapter of Matthew, Matthew 25, where I think Paul is pulling from these very scriptures, in my opinion, even though I don't know if they were quite written yet, but I think the stories were circulating. But Paul says, I mean, Jesus says this in the uh, parable of the wise and foolish virgins. So talking about his second coming, he says, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so Jesus' conclusion of that parable, he says, Watch therefore, for you know not, neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Okay? So he does not and will not teach on the day or the hour. He will always teach on your constantly being ready in case it's today. Always live as if, as if it's today. Chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So this is a call to be alert, a call to be clear thinking always, a call to reflect the light of God, because you are indeed that light. You are the light of the world on God's behalf. So you're not to be carousing and drunk and wasting your time 
as a Christian on the earth, you're to not only be ready yourself for the second coming of the Lord, but getting as many people prepared for that event as well. Verse 8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So until the second coming, we're given three key words to guide our every step through this life. Faith, hope, and love. Do those sound familiar? Okay. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And I would suggest love is even greater than faith because once you die and go to heaven, what need of you of faith? Nothing. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And the Bible says, then you will see him face to face. Hope is you holding on to the certainty of your internal inheritance. Do you need hope in heaven? Not when you have the internal inheritance. Love. Are you going to need love in heaven? So why is it the greatest? Because it's the only one of the three that's eternal and ongoing, right? So love is the greatest, okay? Uh, verse 9 and 10, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. The salvation we received, provided by the dramatic rescue of Jesus of us on the cross, saving us from God's wrath, is worth making every moment of our waking and sleeping being about Jesus. It's not a sacrifice. It's actually worth it. It's actually assessing the proper value to what Jesus did for us. All of your waking and sleeping hours being about him. Verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Now, in Thessalonica, when Paul wrote this letter, that was extremely difficult for them to do. It's difficult for us to do it in this world. So we are here together to offer our strength when others need it, to receive the strength of others when we need it. It's always going to be a fellowship of believers, ironing, sharpening iron, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, uh, knowing that uh, we need fellow believers to strengthen us um, like non-believers just can't do. Uh, verse 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace amongst yourselves. We are to treat those whom God has called into ministry with the respect that acknowledges their calling and acknowledges the one who called them. Be very careful of your criticisms of a church and where in your heart they are coming from. Even imperfect churches, which is every single one of them, is the bride of Jesus Christ. You must keep that in mind when you feel the freedom to criticize a church because you're probably criticizing one aspect that affected you negatively personally, and you're maybe missing the whole uh, effect that church is having on its community, on the people that are attending it, and Jesus may be very pleased where you're not pleased. And again, he calls that church nothing less than his bride that he died for. So I am scared to death to criticize a church 
And I think you should be greatly hesitant to criticize the church as well. Um, when we as believers criticize a church, we are telling the world that they are right for not participating in a church. So the message you're sending when you're critical of a church is a message that may have repercussions on the unbelieving world where you, you're providing comfort and self-righteousness to those who are lost and dying and therefore they can wake up more comfortable never darkening the door of a church because of your post on social media about your bad experience at church. Be very, very careful. Um, God gifts churches. Ephesians uh, chapter, I think it's four. Um, God gives gifts to the church, and those gifts that he gives to the church, he says, are the pastors. They're a gift from God to the church. It's the evangelists or a gift of God to the church. Um, and all of that. So when we criticize, uh, we must keep in mind um, God may very well not be in agreement with you. He already knows they're not perfect, okay? But God doesn't post that on social media. He deals with the minister one-on-one. -on -one. Um, now, there are some false churches out there, okay? So if they're not teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, feel free to call them anathema. But if you're criticizing a Bible-believing church, because of some injury they put on you, and you're doing that publicly rather than personally to that church, I think that is a terrific, terrific sin, quite frankly, a terrific sin. Paul says the very opposite in this. He says to give great honor to those who are placed in the church. Um, recognize those who labor among you or over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then he says, be at peace among yourselves. So um, I just think, I think that's very important. Okay. All right. Anyways. And, I, and I, 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 if you're hearing, oh my gosh, he's telling us to, to love him. No, I'm not your pastor. I'm not anybody's pastor in here. Okay. I have a pastor who, who's at this church and whatever church you go to, that's your pastor. I love teaching you the Bible as much as I possibly can. And I am a pastor, but I ain't your pastor. Okay. So, criticize that. <laughs> All right. Now, I think I am on... It was Ephesians 4. Now I finally saw it in my notes. It's Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7, where the Apostle Paul says... Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, God says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now he's going to unpack that giving gifts to men. He says, first he says, now this he ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one that ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some. So he's picking up this giving gifts to men thing. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the work they're to be doing, and we are to esteem them for their work. Now, he gave 
Some to be apostles, that's total authority. The apostle has a total authority of the church. He gave some to be prophets. Those are always going to be the first to die. Okay, Jesus, Jesus said you killed all the prophets, including John the Baptist. You killed them all. He gave some to be evangelists. Those are his mobile pastors. Pastors on the go all the time, place to place. Those are the evangelists. He gave some to be pastors. Those are the permanent. They settle in a permanent place and give the word of God to a community. And some to be teachers. Okay, So God knows the good gifts that he's giving to his church for their edification. All right, verse 14. Now we exhort your brethren and warn those who are unruly. Oh, I'm sorry, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. So here's going to be six exhortations in our treatment of others that are going to be a direct reflection of our authentic connection to Christ. Six exhortations and how we treat other people that will reflect our commitment to Christ. They are uh, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So those are six things we're to pay attention to until the Lord comes. Verse 16, now we're going to get eight exhortations about our own personal daily walk with Jesus to show our authentic connection to Jesus. Eight exhortations. He says, rejoice always. He says, pray without ceasing. He says, in everything, give thanks. I think that is so healthy. I mean, I really don't think a Christian counselor would have a thing to do with this time if everybody was always giving thanks instead of finding out why they're not happy all the time. Giving thanks is entirely healing and healthy, okay? So he says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So you get six ways of treating others and eight things to do for yourself while you're waiting for the second coming of the Lord. 23, 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and also will do it. This reminds me of Philippians 1, 6. He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? Okay. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Nobody's ever beyond the need for our prayers. Nobody, ever. Um, 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. We did that, didn't we? Okay. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And everybody said, amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this book, this letter, Lord, that we got to share in Paul's heart towards this church and learn so much, Lord, from him uh, through this. And I pray that the teachings of this letter, Lord, would just reach our heart, grow us, sanctify us, cleanse us, and purify us, Lord. Help us to see others as you see them, Lord God. 
Help us to be patient in all circumstances. And Lord, I personally pray that a great heart of thankfulness would come over all who hear uh, from this letter. Just so much to be thankful for, Lord. May we never take it for granted and always be thankful that you are our Lord and God, our great Savior, and whom we give much worship and praise to. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.